0: it's tech biter worldwide i'm bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes that's because we leave out the sports most of the jingles the weather and the commercials podcast number 280 for february 19th 2012 this week is it windows or os 10 or maybe ubuntu When too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing, an interface only a mother could love, and in short circuits, Apple is shamed into auditing Foxconn, Steve Jobs, the book, and an Adobe app for your Android device. All of my current production or test machines run Windows 7 or Windows 8 these days. I no longer have any computer that runs any version of Apple's OS, unless you want to count an 11-year-old laptop that works only when plugged in, has a 10-gigabyte hard drive, a G3 processor, and version 10.3 or maybe 10.4 of the operating system. I had a G4 notebook, but it died a rather nasty death that was no fault of mine or of Apple's. The Windows 7 machines that used to dual-boot with Linux now dual-boot with Windows 8, except for a netbook that has Windows 7 and Ubuntu. So I recently upgraded Ubuntu to version 11.10, and once again, I'm impressed. Ubuntu does have some advantages over Microsoft's and Apple's operating systems, and cost isn't the only one. Cost, though, is a big one. Neither Windows nor OS X is free. Upgrades seem to cost less with Apple's operating system, but they're also more frequent, so the overall cost is probably about the same. Ubuntu Linux is one of the more popular Linux distributions, and there are dozens of reasonably well-known distributions from Red Hat and Debian, Ubuntu is based on Debian, by the way, to SUSE and Slackware. Ubuntu has become popular with Linux users because the distribution's goals include ease of use and focus on the desktop. I was reminded of one of the big advantages Ubuntu has when I booted to that operating system a few weeks ago and ran the updater. First it told me that a new version of Ubuntu was available and asked if I wanted to upgrade. I did. Then it told me that thousands, literally thousands, of packages had been updated and asked if I wanted to update those too. I did. In the Linux world, you can think of a package as part of an application. Any given application may have dependencies on various components, and these often are set up as packages that can be updated separately. The Linux update system is essentially automatic. And that is a very good thing. Both Apple and Microsoft have updating systems for their own software, Microsoft updates the operating system and all Microsoft applications, but no third-party applications. Apple updates its operating system and all Apple applications, but no third-party applications. Some applications, such as Google's Chrome browser or Mozilla's Firefox browser, the Adobe Creative Suite applications, and a few others, have their own updaters that can run more or less automatically. But many applications have no updating process at all. If you have several dozen applications installed, remembering to check for updates every week is something that few people will do, and that leaves computers open to attack via known vulnerabilities. Ubuntu has a centralized repository of applications. Ubuntu's creator, Canonical, maintains a storehouse of all applications that have been tested by Canonical. These are essentially top-level applications, and they include the latest stable releases, and sometimes the latest release may arrive a few weeks late to the Ubuntu repository. But that's not all. Several other groups maintain software that is maintained by the community, and commercial software for which source code is not available, but that may be required for the proper operation of your video or sound system. The user needs to indicate a desire to use these additional software stores, but once that's been done, Ubuntu's update manager can connect to them download new packages, and install them. Quick, seamless, and easy. Sometimes if you want the better product, you have to bite the bullet and pay less for it. Or nothing. What I've described is typically handled by the Synaptic Package Manager, but Ubuntu has another option you'll understand instantly if you've used Apple's App Store, Android's Market, or Microsoft's Windows 8 Store. The Ubuntu Software Center allows users to select, download and install applications and unlike the other systems stores, all of the applications listed in the Ubuntu Software Center are provided without charge. The primary roadblock for many is that they are committed to applications that are not available under Linux. LibreOffice includes most of the components of Microsoft Office, but users who need Outlook or who need features of Microsoft applications that are not available in the LibreOffice applications probably aren't candidates for Ubuntu, even though it's possible to run some Windows applications more or less successfully by using an emulator such as VMware Crossover or Win for Linux, or a non-emulator such as Wine. Other roadblock applications include the many Creative Suite applications from Adobe, available on Windows and Mac systems, but not on Linux. Most people don't need all of the features that Microsoft Office applications provide. Users who need not connect to a Microsoft Exchange server to share calendars and tasks don't need Outlook. Those who don't need all the high end features included in Adobe's Creative Suite applications can almost always find Linux based applications that provide acceptable functionality. The open source community continues to develop operating systems and applications that are more than adequate for many people. But even so, user acceptance of those operating systems and applications continues to be low. Is it inertia? Fear of change? Something else? Sometimes too much of a good thing can simply be too much of a good thing. You probably already know that I spend a fair amount of time watching lynda.com training videos because it's a great way to learn which features power users feel are the most important to learn. But sometimes too much of a good thing can be overwhelming. lynda.com is constantly adding titles to the hundreds or maybe thousands that already exist. I've had trouble in the past organizing titles that I planned to watch, but now there's a Netflix-like solution, a queue that allows users to schedule upcoming training and to specify the importance of the training. This is going to be a popular feature. To explain the queue, lynda.com has produced, you guessed it, a video. You were expecting something else? It's short, A Little Less Than Three Minutes covers the basics of adding programs to your queue and arranging them in order so that you will pursue them in the order you want. In the past 18 months or so, Linda's technology has improved greatly. When a presenter is comfortable in front of a camera and the topic at hand is appropriate for an on-screen presence, Linda puts the presenter on screen. I found this new technique to be particularly welcome with the photography series by Ben Long, who is comfortable and at home in front of a camera as he explains and shows viewers how to get the most out of their digital cameras. When you log in, you'll immediately be presented either with your course history or your queue. lynda.com remembers which you used last and shows you that one initially, but you can switch between them by clicking a tab. There's also a drop-down menu that shows the top five items on your queue and leads to a detailed page that shows the entire queue. You can start programs from the queue page and rearrange items in the queue so that the programs you feel are most important are at the top. It's possible to browse lynda.com's hundreds of training programs and if you find one you're interested in, just add it to the queue. An improvement such as this is easy to consider a minor improvement, but it is both welcome and important. Organizing and prioritizing coursework is the best way to ensure that you get from where you are to where you want to be. The bottom line, lynda.com makes learning even faster. lynda.com has training programs that cover most popular computer programs, some creative concepts, and a few topics that are far afield from what you might expect. Time spent here is rarely wasted. It is important to note that lynda.com provides complimentary access to me to all programs, but it's also important to note that lynda.com's programs are well worth the time spent watching them and the modest monthly fee for those who use the programs to learn techniques that will help them succeed in their jobs. For more information, visit the lynda.com website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. When an application's documentation begins with, do not panic. It may be because you've fallen into a slight variation on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but more likely it's because you've downloaded and installed the bulk rename utility. If you occasionally need to rename a lot of files, you need this free utility from the United Kingdom. That said, not everybody needs an application like this, and there are other bulk renamers that have a far simpler interface but they also do a whole lot less when it comes to renaming files. The bulk renamer utility covers every possibility I can think of, and several more that never even crossed my mind. So chances are pretty good that if you have a bunch of files that are named one way, and you'd like all of them to be named some other way, this application will do it for you. Renaming one or two files isn't bad, just Click the file name in the Windows Explorer, wait a moment and click it again, or right-click the name and then select Rename. Either way, you type the new name and you're done. But what if you have a hundred files, or a thousand, or ten thousand, or even ten? Wouldn't it be better to select the files in a renamer application, tell the application what you want to accomplish, and have it make all of the changes and mass in a couple of seconds? And that's where the complicated interface really begins to make sense. Besides being free and allowing you to rename files, the bulk rename utility makes it possible to add or modify date stamps and time stamps, to replace numbers or text in a file name, to insert text in a file name, to convert the file name's case, to add automatic numbering, and to process entire folders and subfolders all at once. If you need to rename photos, for example, you find that names such as underscore mg underscore zero eight six five dot dng really don't give you a lot of information. Then it's possible to extract the name from the images EXIF data. That earns a wow for me. The same kind of renaming options are possible for MP3 files. According to the Bulk Rename Utilities author, Bulk Rename Utility is an easy-to-use file rename program. Renaming multiple files has never been easier, he says. It has a small memory footprint, so it can be left running all the time without consuming all your memory. It started as a freeware visual basic tool, but as its popularity has grown, it's been completely rewritten in C++ to be robust and lightweight, and very, very fast. It can handle folders and disks containing well over 100,000 entries, and it can batch rename thousands of files in seconds. That's the word of the developer, and I can't find anything to challenge in that description. Many people, when they look at the application's interface, assume they have to fill in something for each of the 13 options. This is not the case. The Do Not Panic page explains it this way. First, complete only the boxes you're interested in. For example, don't assume you have to put something in the Regular Expressions box or the New Location box or any other option. If you don't need the feature, don't use it. Second, nothing happens until you click the Rename button. As you make changes to the renaming form, the proposed new names are shown in the new name column, but your files are not modified until you click Rename. That means you can experiment with various options until you get the desired result, and then commit the changes. And third, most of the boxes on screen affect only the file name, not the extension. The only box that affects the extension is the one labeled (coughs) Extension. There's a long list of things this utility can do. i place placed that list on the TankBiter Worldwide website, and I'll leave it up to you to go there and read that long list. But the bottom line is this. If you need to rename files, you need the bulk rename utility. Five cats, free and easy to use if you don't allow the interface to frighten you. The bulk rename utility is both astonishingly fast and impressively robust. Renaming a file or two is no big deal, but renaming hundreds or thousands of files without this free utility is simply, at least in my mind, unthinkable. For more information, you can visit the bulk rename utility website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and again, this is a free one. In short circuits, Apple's leaders say the company has been trying to clean up operations at Foxconn, the Taiwanese manufacturer of many of its products, but following last week's high-profile delivery of petitions signed by a quarter of a million customers calling for change, Apple has suddenly called for an audit at Foxconn factories. As I mentioned last week, Apple is not the only high-tech company to have products manufactured in Asia, and it is certainly not the only company that employs Foxconn. Other U.S. high-tech companies also have dirty paws. But now, Apple says the Fair Labor Association, the FLA, is conducting independent assessments of worker conditions at Foxconn. The audit will look at compensation, health and safety issues, working hours, and management's relationship with workers. The FLA says it will post results early next month on its website. The quick response surprised Change.org, the primary supporter of a petition created by Mark Shields, the owner of several Apple products, but the FLA may not be quite as objective as it claims to be. A spokesman for Change.org says that the effectiveness and objectivity of the organization is questionable, but if the report is open and transparent, it might be accepted as legitimate. The FLA has already visited one factory and plans to visit others. Foxconn is the world's largest high-tech manufacturer. Apple's PR staff says that it has conducted more than 500 audits of Foxconn operations over the years and believes that the factories provide safe and fair work environments. Many consider the FLA to be toothless and a manufacturer-controlled organization that's failed to produce any changes to sweatshop conditions in other factories, in particular factories that serve the U.S. apparel industry. The fact that Apple has conducted 500 audits on its own of its main manufacturer without finding any of the problems reported in the New York Times and other organizations really doesn't bode too well for this audit. I finally got around to reading Walter Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs, and I highly recommend it. Isaacson was surprised that Jobs didn't want to control the writing of the book, and the result is a candid review of an uncommonly complex man. Jobs was abandoned by his birth parents, and he abandoned his daughter. He could charm people he detested, Gil Emilio, for example, and after a brief courtship, John Scully. He could berate those he loved. As a perfectionist, he created problems that sunk next, but also created the iPod and saved Apple. He was instrumental in founding two companies that defined technology, Apple, and movie making, Pixar. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have liked Steve Jobs, but I knew that before I read the book. I do have to admire what he was able to create, though. In the past couple of weeks, Jobs' FBI file has been made public, and there was really nothing new there. He used drugs. He lied. But what's interesting is that everyone the FBI interviewed when Jobs was being considered for a federal government position recommended him for that position, even people who felt betrayed by him. Over two years, Isaacson met with Jobs more than 40 times for interviews, and he also talked with more than 100 family members, friends, adversaries, competitors, and colleagues. The book is well worth the time you'll spend reading it, and you'll learn how, and to some extent, why, Jobs was able to revolutionize computers, publishing, movies, music, phones, and, near the end of his life, tablet computing. Jobs maintained that artists were usually incapable of creating anything new in their 30s and 40s, but he disproved his own saying by saving Apple from an early death, creating the iPod, and forcing the music industry to acknowledge new technology— Also, he had ideas that led to new products that we never knew we wanted, but adopted quickly when they became available. Jobs cooperated with Isaacson, but demanded no control over what was written. The description on Amazon's website says that Jobs put nothing off limits. He encouraged the people he knew to speak honestly, and Jobs speaks candidly, sometimes brutally so, about the people he worked with and competed against. His friends, foes, and colleagues provided an unvarnished view of the passions, perfectionism, obsessions, artistry, devilry, and compulsion for control that shaped his approach to business and the innovative products that resulted. Go ahead, buy the book, or borrow it from the library, download it, whatever, just, this is a book you should read. The book probably won't change your opinion of Steve Jobs, whether it's good or bad but it will help you to understand one of the most driven and inventive men of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Less than a year ago, Adobe announced Carousel, a mobile photo manipulation and sharing application. Now the name has changed to Revel, and this week it became available for users of Android phones and tablets. Note that Revel is a very Mac-centric application at this time. It is still, however, usable via Android devices. Adobe says the application's new name is intended to better accommodate additional photography solutions and I would have to add possibly to reduce or eliminate any comparisons with the Kodak slide projector of the same name. In addition to the new name, there's a new version 1.1 that fixes some bugs with the first version and adds the ability to share photos via Flickr. If you have an iPad or an iPhone, the new version can also import photos from its camera roll. This week, the Revel importer became available in the Android Marketplace select Market from your Android device, or use a browser to visit the marketplace. The importer application is intended for use with an Adobe Revel account, either a paid subscription or a 30-day free trial version. And it works with any Android device that runs version 2.2 or higher of the operating system. Revel subscriptions cost $6 per month or $60 per year, but the importer itself is free. Users have the option of selecting individual photos, groups of photos, or all photos at once, and importing them into any of the five photo libraries associated with their Adobe Revel account. It can also be set to automatically upload any new photo taken with the Android phone. Revel offers a quick way to browse, share, and improve photos using some technology that Adobe borrowed from Lightroom. It works only with JPEG images though, not with raw images. Revel makes it possible to view your entire photo library on any supported portable device. No storage limits, and synchronization is automatic. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blynn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.